Welcome back to episode 5 of the Heart Podcast, everyone. My name is Omar Omadia, and I'm happy to be with all of you today. Believe it or not, this is our final episode of the season, and it's safe to say we've taken quite a journey together this spring. We've heard about the multifaceted toll that engaging in anti-racist teaching can place on educators, innovative practices in this field for novices and folks well into their career, our fantastic faculty affiliates shared about their personal journey in this work, and lastly, we heard from two rising star instructors and their experience as anti-racist educators in the classroom. To end the season, we bring two guests who have worked closely with Dr. Frank Tewitt and provide us with a unique perspective to the work of anti-racist teaching as educators are more than just instructors and possess a multitude of intersecting identities. Helping me introduce our guest is my friend and colleague, Kelly Schlabach, a first-year doctoral student at UConn and a graduate assistant at ODI. Thank you so much for joining me. Take it away, Kelly. Thank you, Omar. I wanted to add in a special and intentional thank you to Omar, who really does all the behind-the-scenes work in producing for the podcast. He does such an amazing job and puts so much hard work into the podcast. So really, thank you, Omar, for all that you do. Our first guest, Dr. Dorinda Carter-Andrews, is a professor and chairperson of the Department of Teacher Education and Michigan State University, where she teaches courses on urban education, critical multiculturalism, and critical race theory. She holds a BSIE from Georgia Tech, MED from Vanderbilt University, and an EDM and EDD from Harvard University. Her research is broadly focused on black education and racial equity and justice in P-20 learning environments. She utilizes critical racial and black feminist womanist frameworks and methodologies to examine issues of race, culture, and power in schools. She is a former industrial engineer, high school math teacher, and kindergarten teacher, and has teaching experience in suburban, urban, charter, and independent schools. Our second guest, Dr. Maria Salazar, is a professor of curriculum and instruction in teacher education in the Mortgage College of Education at the University of Denver. Dr. Salazar's research focuses on humanizing pedagogy, equitable teaching, and culturally responsive teacher evaluation, and college access and success for Latinx youth. She is affiliated and founding faculty of the University of Denver Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, IRISE, and serves as an educational consultant for organizations such as the Gates Foundation, Branch Alliance for Educator Diversity, Youth Celebrate Diversity, and the Association of Colorado Independent Schools. She is proud of her accomplishments as a mother scholar, Denver Public Schools alumna, first generation college student, and Mexican immigrant. Thank you both so much for joining us and for providing such a valuable perspective on mother scholars, researchers, and advocates of this work. Let's get started. We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. So hello, everyone. Very excited to be joined by two long-term colleagues of mine in this point in work we do to create anti-racist, inclusive, and equitable uh, learning environments. I have with us today Dr. Maria Salazar and Dr. Dorinda Carter-Andrews. And I, as I said, I've had the chance to work with these colleagues for quite some time, so I'm looking forward to our, our discussion today. We're going to jump right in and get going with the first question. As you know, the Heart Podcast is focused on uh, helping us think about how to create anti-racist learning environments. And so really want to get a sense from both of you, what does anti-racist teaching mean to you? And let's start with Dr. Carter Andrews, please. So first of all, thanks, Frank, for having me here and having both of us here. Just really glad to be in community with both of you. Um, I think for me, anti-racist teaching is largely about centering race, but centering race in ways that are analytical and allow us to understand it's not only its construction, but the material implications in the ways that people's uh, people live their lives. So for me, anti-racist teaching is teaching in ways that both excavate race as a social construct, uh, but then help folks understand the material, institutional, structural manifestations 
that privilege some and disadvantage others as it relates to race, racism, and intersecting identities. Yeah, I would, I love that. Um, that was my sense too around as a critical race scholar, the centrality of race, right? And, yeah. and what that means. And for me, when I put race at the center, I put three groups at the center of that, which I feel are my communities, which are black, brown, and indigenous. And so I always advocate across these groups and, and feel that I am, feel that these are my communities because I think we share a common bond of historical trauma and historical oppression and liberation as well. And we share, we share that common sense of community with one another. Um, for me, on top of what um, Dorinda talked about, it's, it's putting anti-racist teaching on the ground. What does it mean to do it? What does it mean to see it in practice? Um, and what does it mean? How does it impact real communities? And so I think all of that is incredibly important. You know, I'd add one more thing to that, um, Frank, um, to what I initially said, because I, I also think it's important for us to lift up in anti-racist teaching that we, we do have to um, help folks understand white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. And so otherwise we continue to other through anti-racist teaching. So it's the both and I think, it's the lifting up of the communities that we as women of color, as people of color care about. I totally agree with Maria in that. And then I worry also, and I've seen this in teacher teacher education that if we only do that work and, and not help folks understand what white supremacy, white supremacist ide uh, ideologies and logics look like on the ground, then they will miss the opportunity to really do that on the ground work well. Yeah, and I would agree to that in terms of a systems approach, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because I think our, we have, I'm in a predominantly white institution. So my white students, their initial reaction is, but that's not me. And yes. so helping them to see how it has been systematized and providing real world examples from our own lived experience. But I also bring in quite a bit of spoken word poetry, media. Right, so they can see real people and real people's lives because often our classrooms aren't very diverse. So we've got to bring in those those narratives, those lived experiences, those testimonials through other means to help them understand how white supremacy is systematized and not just the holder of one individual. That that's great. So Maria, you you, you sort of started us down this path. So I just wanted to follow up on this. You you identified as a race scholar, and Dorinda, I know uh, you you similarly sort of yes. claim that space. I'm wondering, are there uh, conceptual perspectives that drive your approach to anti-racist teaching? Where do those perspectives come from, and uh, what are some ways in which you operationalize that in in the classroom context? Yeah, I am very driven by Freire's conceptualization of a humanizing pedagogy. When I read a pedagogy of the oppressed, it, it, it finally, for me, it was that encumbering of the mind, right? And it really gave me a language to understand my own experience, especially his concept of dehumanization, which I experienced, I would say, from kindergarten all the way through my doctoral program. And so I write about it in my article on humanizing pedagogy, how I went to kindergarten with all my treasures and they were in my mochila, my backpack. And I was so proud of all those treasures, my Mexican culture, my Spanish language, my familia, and how my first grade teacher in a sink or swim environment, an English only environment, gave me a new backpack, one that would serve me better that had the US language and US culture and ways of knowing and how that took me through all the way through my doctoral program, the sense that um, my old treasures, they had no more value and I didn't want them anymore and how I craved whiteness and wanted to be accepted and wanted the color of my skin to turn white and how hard that was to navigate that journey all the way through my doctoral program and feel that sense of dehumanization, that my humanity had been stolen and stripped from me and I had to, and continue to work so hard to get it back. 
um, even today in higher education. So I would say a humanizing pedagogy has absolutely guided my work because of the opposite that I received in my whole educational experience. So it guides my research around teacher evaluation, teacher education, and it guides the way I teach in the classroom too. I very much bring in a humanizing pedagogy into the higher ed classroom. For example, at the beginning of my class, we always do a show and share. Everyone has an opportunity to share their life and I share my life with them. Like this week I'll talk about, it's my son's last week of high school and they see me tear up and they, they get to know my kids and my family and me and my hardships and my struggles. And then they're willing to share that in return. And we create an environment that's very much about caring and humanizing one another and pushing each other within that space to learn and grow and develop critical perspectives. So it guides me because it's something I didn't have and something I want others to absolutely have throughout their journey because I didn't experience that humanization. That's so powerful. Dorinda? Yeah, thank you for that, Maria, because, you know, I would say initially or early on my and and throughout my life i i would say my conceptual perspectives the guy my work come from my parents particularly my mother and think i i mean i didn't have the language for this growing up or e even in undergraduate i i think not until i started my doctoral studies did i really learn language like epistemology and ontology and began to understand, you know, black feminist womanist storytelling and practices. And I was like, that's my mama. Those are my aunties, right? My grandmothers. And that's where my epistemological and ontological orientations come from. And now I have scholarship that gives me language to frame that. Um, and help me understand the way I teach my pedagogy and practice. So, you know, I show up in the classroom, my ways of knowing and being are really informed by the, you know, black feminist womanist storytelling and practices, bell hooks, transgressive pedagogy. I started with Freddy and then found bell, right? So I feel like, um, Frary helped give me that grounding, um, and then Bell Hooks allowed me to see myself mm -hmm. um, and to know myself in a new way, along with Audre Lorde and Patricia Hill Collins. Um, and so th these perspectives guide my work. They guide the experiences I bring into the classroom and that I share with students. And, and then students understand how I show up, right? I try to model for them anti-racist pedagogy and practice through those epistemologies and ontologies. And then the last piece I'll add to that is spirituality. Um, and for me, that's very critical to who I am as an educator and how I frame my teaching and learning and my research and scholarship. So, along with those early learnings um, from black women was black church you know the black baptist church and how i came to know and understand myself so it's this melding of spirituality and black feminism womanism that inform my pedagogy and practice along with early ideas from frary Dorinda, I love how you frame that in all of the assets that you have in your family, in your church. I think that's so, so, so powerful. And that's not something I had that's so hard. Like we had a lot of trauma in my home and just a lot of challenges. And yet we were resilient, right? We were, you know, we were resilient and we've stuck together like nothing. So my family is at the center of all my work. Mm. So I think that's interesting to contrast those experiences as well. And I love how you say you started with Freire. I feel like I started with Freire and found myself because I couldn't see a humanizing pedagogy through a white man's eyes. I needed to see it through my eyes. And that's how I've taken the concept and tried to 
to see it from my own eyes and mm -hmm. extend it from my own eyes on the ground, right? And, and so that, um, I think, gravitating toward that scholarship of women of color as a whole, I would say, um, because I feel Andazua was huge in that, shifting my perspective around the humanizing pedagogy and language and culture and sexuality as well. Um, so I think that's a really powerful way to look at it and, and the lenses that we use. Oh, this is so rich. Uh, I, I was listening to both of you talk about the ways your lived experiences have shaped how you think about anti-racist teaching. And I, I'm wondering, as you attempt to embody that in the classroom, what are the costs of doing this labor in the ways that you do this labor? I mean, it's a, it's taxing, Frank. It is, it's emotionally taxing. It's physically taxing uh, because teaching is always performative, but there's a different, I think, there's a different kind of performance that is very soulful and rooted when you're doing this work. And Maria talked about, you know, being in a PWI, you know, when I look out into a classroom audience, especially of undergrads, most of my students are white. That's very different than when I'm teaching the critical race theory class where students of color, black and brown folks have decided to come and be in that space. And so your labor is different. Um, but even the back and forth between those two types of audiences, Maria talked about gazes and I, you know, I'm 17 years into my career now, but I have to admit early on, even in doing anti-racist work, I think I was teaching very much through the white gaze even in the anti-racist work. And that took a lot of critical self-reflection to say, you've got to shift your gaze. Um, and so even as a, a race scholar, right? Somebody who identifies as a race scholar, the unlearning that I had to do because that white gaze is so strong um, added some additional labor that now I feel like at this stage of my career, I've been liberated from, but there's other type of emotional and physical labor at play. So I'd love to hear what Maria has to say. Yeah, I love that you talk about this white gaze because it's cemented in appointment promotion and tenure. Right, and so uh, to to get where we are today, we've had to learn to use that white gaze to some extent or another. And I often um, tell people that I want to write an article about losing my stories, mm -hmm. how I've become so linear in my process in higher education. Uh, when I first started teaching, the students would give me feedback that I was getting off on tangents, and those were my stories. Those were not tangents. Those were me. That was my lived experience. And so I started teaching using PowerPoint so I could become more linear, right? And then as, as you write, as you know, as an editor of the Journal of Teacher Ed, incredibly linear, right? And so I, I feel like through this process, there's I feel a sense of loss, like how I, I've gained a perspective in terms of linear and quantitative methods and empirical methods, but I always try to bring my stories with me in everything I write. There's always a story there from my life so that I don't lose those stories and I anchor to my oral history and my heritage. And so there's definitely a cost, no question. There's a cost even to me interacting with my family. I'm the only one in my family who has a college education. And so I'm, I'm always very cautious of how I position myself in the family um, so that it doesn't feel to them like I think I'm better than they are. And so there's a cost there, even in your personal life and, and just the cost of sharing yourself, right? I share myself in my work. I share my narratives, my stories, and it can feel quite exhausting. I think um, sharing that and, and in a, a predominantly white university, it can be very exhausting working with each student where they are because there's such a range of where they are in terms of their understanding of anti-racist teaching. 
And I often tell my students, I get tired of putting this stuff in a box with a pretty bow so you can see it. Sometimes I just want to hit you with it. <laughs> like, here it is. Here's, here's our reality. Here's my reality. If that hurts you, I that's just too bad. And I today, I just don't feel like putting it in a pretty box with a pretty bow for you. And yet, that can have an impact and that can have consequences. And so, I think as a woman of color, I'm always very aware of um, the consequences and and sometimes I'm willing to take those consequences and other times I'm more cautious. So you're always negotiating that, I think, within yourself, right? Um, how do I how do I appear? How do I present today? And and I'm just tired of presenting in a in a pretty box for you today. You know, can I just add really quickly, Maria, I really appreciate the way you lifted up presenting um, and negotiating. Because those are, I, I think for us as women of color, the costs are different for uh, male identified faculty. And I was thinking about, you know, both Maria and I are mother scholars as well. And that presenting and that negotiating uh, both with the children who are ours biologically and then the other children, right? I talk a lot about other mothering as part of my pedagogy and practice, my anti-racist pedagogy and practice. And in a lot of ways, I see my work in higher education as largely about other mothering in the classroom. And um, the labor of that uh, is, I'm not saying better or worse than, just quite different and nuanced from that of male-identified scholars. And there's yeah. a cost to that as well. That's powerful. Yeah, I have to stay with that for a little while. I have long been aware of the privileges that my maleness provides me and my ability to navigate uh, both the classroom and institutional context. But uh, can you both just say a little bit about Mother Scholars and, and, and its connection to anti-racist teaching in the ways that you see it? I don't think I've heard a lot of discussion about that. I mean, for me, and I'll say, you know, right now my kids are 12, 13, and 15. They, they were 12, 13, and 14 until yesterday. And so I'm, I feel like I'm in it. I'm raising three Black daughters to both contend with the ills of race and racism, but also develop healthy racial identities. As I do, so that's anti-racist teaching in the home, right? And some of that carries over, transfers, parallels to anti-racist teaching in the classroom for me. Those same guiding principles, frameworks, race dialogue that I'm doing at home, they actually show up in my classes, right? And so for me, Frank, that's why I see it as other mothering. I may not articulate this to my college students, but in my spirit, in my soul, they are my children in a way that's not biological and the same care I take with critical race consciousness with my biological children, I feel like I am obligated, whether I should be or not, to take that same care with my college students. So for me, now I'm feeling like this is a paper in the making, right? <laughs> Other mothering and anti-racist teaching for black women is a thing. That's a thing. And for other women of color, that's a thing that I think you asking us to make that connection just helped me to deepen. Yeah, I think that's powerful because like you're not aware of it because you do it, right? It's just part of your natural lens as a as a mother. I mean, you mother the friends of your children, you mother in so many contexts, your nieces, nephews, right? And so I, I think that's absolutely right that it feels like this when you're bringing it into the classroom. And for me, it's about helping them bring the theories to life, right? 
anti-racist teaching is not a theory. It's, it's my life. It's my reality. It's the conversations I have with my children, especially my Cisco, who's 17 years old and 6'1 and dark-skinned. And I watch as he gets darker and, and I become more nervous as he gets darker every summer. And I warn him about being in very affluent homes where there are gated communities not to be out at night because there's nobody who looks like us in these contexts and that will signal danger to people. Um, whether that is um, right or just or not, that is our reality. And so that's where I think I bring that into the classroom is to help students understand the lived experience beyond the theory. Like I said, I do that through my research, but I also do that through sharing my own lived experience and bringing in guest speakers as well as lots and lots of media so they can see um, anti-racist teaching is our life. It's the way we see the world. It's what we do every day. It's what I do on an airplane. It's what I do in my home. It's what I do at the university. And so I think they don't, I try to stress to them, like, you can leave the anti-racist teaching behind or pick and choose when you do it. I can't. This is my life. I do this all the time, every day. And I think they start to have a better understanding of the weight that we carry when we help them bring it to life. We're just a few minutes into this conversation. There's so many rich things coming across here. I want to put a placeholder here for another potential future paper for you all on this, this notion of anti-racist teaching as a reclamation of self, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm struck by, Maria, your sense of loss through the educational experience and the ways in which your commitment to anti-racist teaching has allowed you to reclaim some of that and use it in a way that it empowers others to uh, in, engage in this important work. As, as we all know, the work you do, the work we do doesn't, doesn't exist in isolation. We're in a department, we're in a college, we're in an institution. And I'm really interested in how you see the institution supporting uh, this work or perhaps uh, being a barrier to this work. Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I love how you talked about reclaiming self. I don't think I see it that way. I see it more um, along this, this state of becoming, right? Like, I don't feel like I will ever know myself fully because I'm always in a state of learning and growing and transforming. And so um, even from kindergarten to where I feel like my teacher stripped me of my humanity and I write about how all of my teachers were complicit in that thievery, there's always the sense of, needing to get something back. And I think uh, being at this stage in life, I've realized it's not about getting something back. It's about um, taking who I am, where I've been and continuing to move forward in the sense of becoming and, and growing, right? And so for me, it's a, it, it's a continual state of growth. I try to model that for my students, how I position myself in the classroom as well. Um, that I'm growing and learning from them as well, that I don't have all the expertise. And so I think the way the institution then supports this becoming or hinders it is really complex. And I come back to appointment promotion and tenure and how, um, what does that mean? The University of Denver is now a research one university. What does that mean for our mm -hmm. state of becoming as we continue to move in this area? I've heard our leadership talk about how at the University of Denver, we've done our one, our way, and I've challenged them and told them they've done it on the backs of their faculty of color. And so that doesn't mean our way is working or our way is right. So I think absolutely developing systematic structures that go across the university, particularly to support faculty of color, women of color, people in historically marginalized groups is so, so, so important that it doesn't just happen at a college level, but it there's at least that understanding or, I don't know, that visibility of, I hear you, I see what you're saying, um, versus say the right word, say equity 5,000 times and DEI, and it means we are it. Like, yeah, you can say it all you want, but that doesn't mean that you have structures that support it or value value your faculty, especially your faculty from historically marginalized groups. So this is a challenge, I would say. I really appreciate that, Maria, because 
Um, I was thinking about, you know, just the experiences of faculty of color in trying to advance anti-racist teaching, right? In, in these institutions and the associated barriers. So I'm glad you lifted some of those up. I, I was also thinking about, you know, issues with building capacity. And by that, I mean, human resource capacity, but also curricular capacity. And I'll say what I mean by both. Obviously, in the human resource space, I'm I'm talking about a critical mass of mm-hmm. folks who really center anti-racist pedagogy and practice. It's not on the periphery of their scholarship. They have more than one paper where they centered, you know, and so we hire them. But what's the investment in both tenure streamlines and clinical or fixed term lines, whatever you call it in your institution? What's the investment in scholars and scholar practitioners who really center anti-racist pedagogy and practice? And then what I mean by building curricular capacity, I mean, we're in 2022. If we are far beyond like the diversity course in a program, how is there a through line around anti-racism in the programming, in, in any degree program, uh, and both in that academic curriculum a classroom curriculum, but also any field experiences or clinical experiences or internships that they have. So a barrier becomes, you know, the one and done as opposed to an integrative, threaded, coherent um, uh, commitment, narrative, resourced uh, way of thinking about, systematized, as Maria said, way of thinking about anti-racist pedagogy and practice. The the last thing I'll say about this, um, leadership becomes a barrier and not in your traditional ways. I am thinking also about the lack of promotion of folks who actually do this work into leadership roles where they can be transformative change agents at the structural level. It's okay for them to be in the classroom, but how do we develop them as administrators? That's a barrier when we don't allow for that kind of growth. So I don't take it lightly, right? That I'm the first black female department chair of the number one program of teacher education in the country. That's an opportunity to like deconstruct, disrupt, you know, um, dismantle the status quo, but the university, the system doesn't want to do too much of that, right? And so that becomes a barrier when we prohibit the advancement of folks who are really engaging the work in ways that can be transformative and disruptive. I think that comes back to your point about white supremacy, though, to put people like that or us in leadership positions is is threatening to people. Yeah. And why is it threatening to people? Because it shakes the white supremacist structure. And so, yep. I think, again, it becomes all looped together. So let's stay with this a little bit. Um, both of you have currently or have had responsibility for a teacher ed program specifically in, in, in shaping uh, future teacher educators. Uh, I wanna stay with the leadership role first and then we'll come back to the classroom. What has been helpful from an institutional perspective in providing support to you? You, you talked a little bit about it, uh, I think from a, a faculty perspective, So, but I wanna ask it from a leadership perspective. If you're trying to infuse anti-racist practices into a teacher ed program, what has been helpful from an institutional perspective? And again, are there other barriers that you've seen uh, that prevented you from doing it in ways that that you would have liked to? From my experience, I'm going to go to the words of a great American philosopher known as Ludacris. Get out the way. 
That has been the very best support I have gotten in building our teacher education program. It's get out of my way and let me do it. Let me dismantle what was currently in place. Let me build it back up. And so it's not even sometimes having the resources because you can't often depend on those resources to come your way. And so in the absence of resources, it's get out the way and let me do the work. I would agree with Maria on that and, and, and name it for me as, you know, having leaders above me, a dean, who uh, empower me to be agented, right? So they stay out of my way, right? And because there's a confidence in, I guess, my ability to go forth and just do whatever I think is best for the program. And so that's exciting, like that's support. You're not micromanaging me. You're not looking over my shoulder. You are like, you got this. So that's been supportive. I will also say the support of my colleagues, right? In being willing to step up to lead the colleagues who do the work. You know, tenure stream faculty often just see their work as teaching, research, and service. So you ask them to lead, and they're like, wait a minute, you're taking away from particularly research. But part of a large part of my success in this work has been having supportive peer colleagues who both lead and, and just carry the baton programmatically, intellectually, so that we can innovate, right? So having a supportive dean who is not micromanaging, who's agentive, who will also advocate to the provost as needed. We may not always get the yes, but it's really nice to have a dean who will um, advocate for teacher education when you need them to. So those have been some supports. I would agree with the colleagues in particular. Sometimes you have leadership that don't support yep. this work. And so what, it, what does it look like then to be able to do this work when you don't have that support at an institutional level? So from a, from a leadership perspective, you have responsibility for guiding your colleagues who are teaching future teachers. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you have those future teachers who are going into hopefully the career of teaching students more broadly. And I guess when you think about those two communities, what would have been some forms of resistance either from the faculty who are teaching and preparing future teachers or the actual teachers mm -hmm. in training? What have been some forms of resistance as it relates to getting them to embrace anti-racist teaching practices? So I can start because I've been thinking a lot about the preparation of teacher educators uh, because, I mean, I'm a teacher educator. My faculty are teacher educators, right? We are the teacher educator. Our doctoral students are, and they, we just don't get a lot of development. There's an assumption that, oh, you're a teacher educator. You engage anti-racist teaching. And there are a lot of teacher educators who are harmful, they're toxic, but they think they are social justice focused and all about equity, right? And so I think those are the, those are the most dangerous in terms of as a leader, I'm responsible for both identifying, maybe even designing uh, and implementing opportunities for my faculty to grow their consciousness. And so I wouldn't frame it as resistance, Frank, but it is this like, maybe it is resistance. I don't know how to articulate it, but it's a, for some, it's the thinking that they are conscious. And I'm like, no, 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 sweetie. We actually need to do some professional development here. And then it's the other side of folks who want to do the right thing, but they're like, I just don't have the skill set. And so their syllabus, their, their pedagogy still lacks the criticality. 
So it's that tension of the both and and how you work through that. And, and sometimes that looks like outright resistance. And at other times, it's like this absence of awareness that you actually aren't where you think you are in your consciousness. Yeah, I think the greatest resistance I faced is something Dorinda has talked about, which is the system. Right When I entered our teacher education program at the University of Denver in 2007, there was incredible resistance to change and it was run by two adjuncts. And so they were telling me that it's always been done this way because the state requires it. So what I started to do is look at state requirements, university requirements and figured out that wasn't true. So I needed to pull out the right Jenga piece to topple the program without making sure I killed it in that moment before I could rebuild it. So I had to pull out the right Jenga piece from the system so I could topple that white supremacist program and rebuild it from the ground up. And I think that's something that um, I've always looked at systems as not something that is supposed to be or just how it is, but I look at it as how can I go over it? How can I go around it? How can I go under it? How can I go through it? And so that to me then creates innovation in the space to do this anti-racist work, because if we don't tackle the system, the system maintains things as it always has been maintained. You know, can I add something else? Because this is real talk and, and something I feel like I've been dealing with for the last three years. This is my third year as chair and a part of the structure, right, that I wouldn't have seen as a faculty member in this way. I also think the resistance comes by way of faculty who feel like they own the diversity and equity initiatives. And these are white faculty. And so as you grow your faculty of color, there's this threat of like, oh, the thing that I used to have territory over, this is where I feel, I'm like, whiteness is property. Whiteness is property. The thing I used to have territory over is now going to be given to the person of color. That's not communicated, but I feel it. And at the same time, I'm like, but they center in the work. Like they do the work. They know the critical frameworks. If I ask you to define something, you don't know what it is. So how can you enact the thing that you know not the literature for, the understanding? You show up differently. And that's not to negate what you've already done, but we are now expanding our community in a way that we are bringing knowledge holders to the table, right? So, Frank, when you talk about resistance, for me, it shows up most as like, wait a minute, I own the equity landscape. And so well, I, I don't want to give that up. I like being the white woman who's known as the, you know, face for the urban initiatives. Well, not anymore. It makes me think about um, it's like taking away their cape, right? They, yes. You're basically saying you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be the head of fixing, changing, or saving us anymore. Yes. That's, that's yes. threatening. It's like they lose their superhero status of yep. the white savior. Yep, yep. I haven't really had that experience at DU as much. It was more um, moving faculty out who just, it was time, it was time. And bringing in faculty, that's faculty of color or white faculty as well, yep. who are willing to do this work together and yep. not necessarily be the face of it, but help us build it. So I yep. think yep. I've definitely been very um, fortunate with colleagues um, where we've had a little bit of challenges is more um, support from the leadership. Wow. So this this last sort of train of thought here has me thinking about something that's been weighing on my mind. And Dorinda, I think I talked a little bit about this in, in your class a couple of weeks ago uh, on how I feel like the ways in which we've operationalized sort of diversity, equity, and, and inclusion efforts has actually worked against anti-racist practices in a lot of ways. And, and so I wonder for our audience, could you reflect a little bit on how 
you see anti-racist teaching as different from uh, the sort of traditional diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts that we've seen, or the, even going back to the multicultural uh, movement we, we had earlier on in, in, in our evolution here uh, around these issues. Thoughts about how anti-racist teaching um, may be different than, than what we have done in the past related to diversity and inclusion. Well, I would like to go to uh, one of the best experts in this area of DEI, Dr. Frank Tewitt. <laughs> I had the honor of teaching next to him, working next to him for how many years was it, Frank? A super long time, 16, 17? 16 years, yeah. <laughs> 16 years. And what I learned from this great uh, scholar was how sometimes the umbrella gets so wide that anything can fit under it, right? And so Frank would often talk about how um, the umbrella or the parachute of DEI was so broad that it could mean anything. And in fact, I would see this in meetings with um, our former uh, chancellor and provost and board of trustees, and they would talk about diversity of thought. And I was like, wait a minute, they're talking about conservative perspectives. Like, that's what they're talking about fitting diversity of thought under the parachute, right? And I'm like, how the heck did this become part of DEI work, right? And so what I learned from this great scholar, uh, Dr. Tewitt, was that sometimes the parachute is amplified such that it loses, it, DEI loses its power, and that this focus on anti-racist teaching center centers us on race. And for me, it's, as I stated, always Black, Brown, and Indigenous, but of course it's also um, others who are marginalized, uh, like our Arab brothers and sisters and our Asian Pacific Islander. And so even though I center my work in these spaces, I absolutely acknowledge um, our shared struggle as well. Um, so I think centering it back on race is incredibly powerful. And even within that targeting, like the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Targeting to say, oh, we're taking a particular lens here or indigenous or Latinx. I often identify with the term indigenous because I'm indigenous from Mexico. And so I don't use the term Latinx as much because I feel that box is very, very big. I tend to use black, brown and indigenous. So I think the anti-racist work really helps us with that lens to narrow in whether that is multiple groups or one group and to really be intentional about um, bringing that lens to the work, I think, is very, very powerful and moving away from the big parachute. Yeah, and I would add to that, I think, um, you know, as we talk about the the need to really, I mean, we, we have to center race and racism, particularly in a U.S. context, right, because of the history of the relationship of race um, to the U.S., right? So, you may be in some other part of the world and anti-racist pedagogy and practice as we understand it wouldn't mean the same thing, right? But I think, the, and, and, and that then is where terms like multicultural education become perhaps more useful, palatable, et cetera. But I think the need to center race and racism to confront white supremacy, not white people per se, but white supremacy and its manifestations in society and schooling is so important. And, and understanding both the historical roots of institutional racism, but the contemporary manifestations as well. So for me, anti-racist pedagogy and practice is critical to even a multicultural agenda, a social justice agenda, right? It's not the end all be all, but it's foundational to me in a US, particularly in a US context. So we must start there, but not in there. And to Maria's point, it allows us also to get out of the black white binary. We often start there, but really being intentional about anti-racist teaching should move you beyond the black-white binary. Yeah, I have definitely struggled with that around. Yeah. Um, there's There's been so much focus on the black community and I hear stories and I think our stories like that too, right? And 
And so kind of feeling even more invisible within that binary, um, even more so now than ever, I'm really feeling like we're we're becoming even more and more invisible within that. Um, so that I for me, it's definitely about um, taking a targeted approach to look at specific groups and amplifying to look at our connections to each other as well. I was just going to say one more thing. The other thing that an anti-racist agenda allows for is the examination of uh, power and power structures. Sometimes when you take a multicultural approach or a DEI approach, it lets you off the hook of doing that deep power analysis, which also will lead you to a critical examination of capitalism. I think when you take an anti-racist approach, you're able to really deconstruct capitalism and its role in oppression, which we often leave out. So I like taking the anti-racist approach so that people don't circumvent examinations of power structures, including capitalism. So we, we have just a couple of minutes left, and I would be remiss if I didn't uh, point to the current context of a sort of a national context around uh, anything that's focused on anti-racism. You both are in, in different parts of the country now. I'm curious what has been the reaction, uh, both at a state level, and how have you been navigating the the increasing hostility around what folks are framing as a backlash against CRT, but we know it's the, the agenda there is much more focused on anything to deal with addressing race, systemic racism, right? Um, but what, what's, what's been the situation in your particular areas? Well, I live in the wild, wild west, so <laughs> you can only imagine, right? In the wild, wild west, it's very decentralized. There's um, really no sense of uh, overall policy or practices that guide schooling. It really is a district by district decision. And it's also school by school decision. And so you see that hugely where you see the Denver Public Schools and their school board who actually uses the term anti-racist in their board statements and talks about um, it talks about anti-racism and justice. And that is actually I'm serving on the Denver Public Schools Strategic Planning Committee and we're building strategic goals around anti-racism. You now contrast that to another local school district, Douglas County, who just fired their superintendent for, for having an equity plan, because that's something that now the new school board, which has just been sworn in, is completely against this focus on equity and, of course, critical racist theory. And so we, we see a huge, huge I would say variety in the state, and that's very typical of states that are decentralized. I'd say the same thing. The, the use of the term decentralized is accurate for Michigan as well. I mean, we do have, you know, State Bill 460 that's in the legislature, but most folks don't believe that it will come past committee. SB 460, which is written to, you know, ban critical race theory in schools. Um, and uh, we, it, it, it really hasn't gone beyond committee. But, you know, I've been a part of various panels and, you know, some TV interviews about CRT and how everything captured under that umbrella, you know, what, what's the impact for teachers in Michigan? But I feel like right now, some of that has died down, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the hoopla around that. I do think though the impact has been teachers are nervous. Some have been more cautious around uh, how they're teaching a thing related to race and equity and justice. But in many districts around Michigan, you still have school leaders and school boards who are moving forward with the equity plans, um, you know, the equity initiatives. So I'm not sure the, the fallout has been as critical yet, but I think if that bill has any life, 
that may change things. So it doesn't sound like either you are facing what our colleagues in, in Texas or Florida are, are facing now. No, no. no. Oh, that's good. All right, last question. Uh, this is this has been a great, great conversation and, and gone now past uh, I didn't anticipate, which is always good. I'm wondering what's next on the frontier for anti-racist teaching as we think about moving forward, whether that's for you on an individual professional level or more broadly for the collective of us who are engaged in, in uh, advancing uh, anti-racist practices in, in education. Any thoughts about what you see as next on the horizon? For me, I think in teacher education, we will continue to see um, an uptick in social justice teacher education programs. And by that, I mean, there are teacher prep programs around the country who are redesigning and trying to be much more intentional about that through line, right? Now it's gonna look different depending on the program. Some will say social justice and race may not be centered that much. Right, so the variability, it would be an interesting study, Frank, for, for somebody to do around the design and implementation of these teacher prep programs that are deemed social justice versus those that call themselves anti-racist, right? But I think we will continue to see this as a commitment area for teacher preparation. I think the work that needs to continue though is the preparation of teacher educators and mm -hmm. the ways in which anti-racist pedagogy and practice show up in their training. They're being doctoral students, but also current faculty. For us in, in teacher education as well, I would say our work centers around teacher evaluation and our framework for equitable and excellent teaching. And so we're getting ready to implement our newest version, which is amplified in terms of anti-racist teaching, critical consciousness. We've really gone back and actually um, revised our whole professionalism focus. We don't even call it that anymore because we're seeing across the board, especially in our state, professionalism, the indicators of professionalism are being used against teachers of color. So we're rebuilding all of our tool around building community and what does it look like to be a member of a community as a teacher. So for us, it's about building anti-racist teaching into a teacher education, uh, teacher evaluation framework, which then guides our entire program. And so, because it's the center of our work, it builds our program and continuing to share that nationally and see it implemented um, across the nation and get some data around how that's impacting students and teachers as well. So, I, I truly believe that we can incentivize and hold teachers accountable for this work and that it, it should not be a choice because it, it's about our humanity. So we're ending uh, where we started, which is around the importance of anti-racist teaching and, and practices more broadly as a, a humanizing uh, sort of goal and an agenda. I want to thank both of you for the opportunity to be in community with you once again. I benefited from being able to learn from both of you over the years and appreciate the contribution not only to, to my thinking about these issues, but the impact that you've had on the field more broadly. So thank you for agreeing to participate in, in, this, in this podcast. Omar, I'll hand it over to you. Any, any closing thoughts or things we need to, to address before we wrap up here? Yeah, I just wanna echo your thoughts, Frank. And I, I'd like to thank both of our guests, Dr. Carter Andrews and Dr. Salazar, just for, for your vulnerability. It was really beautiful to hear and heart-wrenching at the same time to hear the quite the vast spectrums there are to human experiences and how we can prevail despite where we come from you know i i and and that's just the reality that instructors face in the classroom as they deal with students and they work with students to kind of meet them where they are and uh oftentimes i i think about like where i am now and it's because of instructors like the three of you
you know, I think we it's it's a uh, and and I kind of want to channel Milagros here, who's who's a colleague uh, that helped create this podcast. That it, it takes a village, it really takes a village. It's a collective effort, and so very excited for the future. Commend you for your efforts, and your students are very very lucky to have you. So, thank you once again. Thank you so much to our guests and to all of you for your generous support this season. The Heart Podcast team will take a break this summer, but be sure to look out for season four launching this August 2022. Until then, have a safe and restful summer, everyone. As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.